TED Audio Collective. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. My wife, Abby, likes to have a lot, just a lot of things. And this includes food. So when Abby orders, let's say, pizza, we have five people in our family, she might come home with four pizzas. She might come home with five pizzas. This is Glennon Doyle, best-selling author and nonprofit leader. She's married to soccer star Abby Wambach, and Glennon does not know what to do about Abby's overordering habit. And so this is an issue for us. Too much food, not enough food, overordering, underordering. I think we fight about it maybe once a week. And her wife, Abby, well, she's at a point where she wants to avoid this conflict altogether. And also, it's exhausting. Oh my <laughs> God, sometimes I just want to agree to disagree just so we can move beyond. Well, and you do, and this Let's just agree to disagree. I hate when people say that because it means they've given up. They've decided their conflict is unresolvable. And there are a few things that cause me more pain than seeing a conflict go unresolved. Conflicts at home and work often seem different, but they have similar roots and similar remedies. In any relationship, conflict is inevitable, but it isn't unsolvable. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people to rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, how the keys to handling conflict at work and in life are often hiding in plain sight. Thanks to Verizon for sponsoring this episode. Every relationship, in every team, in every workplace has conflicts. We disagree about big decisions. Who to hire, how to improve a culture, whether to let people keep working remotely. We also disagree about smaller issues. What time to meet, what to put first on the agenda, and how many pizzas to order, or at least which toppings. Extensive research shows that conflict has a big impact on cohesion and performance. The key issue, though, is not how often we have conflict. It's how well we manage it. The goal isn't to have less conflict. It's to have the right kind of conflict. And to do that, we need to start by recognizing what we're actually arguing about, which is often not what we think we're arguing about at all. But confronting any type of conflict can be uncomfortable. For most of my life, I've been afraid of conflict. I've shied away from telling friends they have food in their teeth. I've hesitated to tell bankers they were hazing their employees. And I've failed to say anything to writers who have borrowed a little too liberally from my work. I don't want to hurt their feelings or damage the relationship. And I want to be liked. Two decades ago, I went through conflict mediation training. I came away with invaluable lessons about how to handle conflict. I don't always succeed in applying the skills to my own life but they do come in handy with others. I come from a family that didn't waste anything. I'm a scarcity, Abby is abundance. 
Earlier this year, I was in the middle of a live virtual event with Glennon Doyle. She wondered what advice I had on resolving conflict. So I asked her for a concrete example. So Abby will just over, overdo things. And then I will judge her. And then I will be annoyed. And then she will feel sad. <laughs> okay, so do you want to play Abby or is she available? Okay, I'll get her. Hey, babe. <laughs> Can you come here? Hey, Adam. So I should tell you, there are, there are 350 people here. And we wanted to put you on stage to resolve a conflict in your marriage. Are you cool with it? Yeah, totally. I can't. Which which conflict? I, I heard a rumor that sometimes you might order 17 extra pizzas. What What's going on here? I grew up in a big family and there was always food. But in order to get seconds, you needed to finish everything on your plate. Sometimes you finish everything on your plate and then all the food was gone. So in me, I have a total fear of scarcity. Like Like there will not be enough. And to be the person that is in charge of our entire family's intake, I don't want anybody to experience that, that feeling of scarcity. Those two things smushed together forces me to order more than we probably need for that dinner. That, that's beautiful. So first of all, I just think what an inexpensive way to feel secure. Like most people pay thousands of dollars for therapy when they're dealing with those kinds of demons, right? And here you can order some extra pizzas. I feel like that's a good deal. As Glennon described their conflict, I immediately thought of the ladder of inference. It's the first step to untangling a messy conflict and bringing it back to the essence of what it's actually about. The basic idea is that many of our conflicts come from making the wrong assumptions about other people's behavior. It's not enough to take their perspective. We actually need to go out and get their perspective. Think about a conflict you've had with a friend, a coworker, or a manager. Now imagine your views on a ladder, from observations up to assumptions up to conclusions. At the bottom of your ladder are specific observations you've made about the other person. Glennon's observation was that Abby ordered too much pizza. Then Glennon walked up a step and made some assumptions. Abby doesn't care about conserving food. Abby doesn't care about saving money. After it happened multiple times, their conflict escalated, and Glennon finished climbing up the ladder to a conclusion. Abby is wasteful. From then on, every time Abby ordered too much of anything, it just reinforced Glennon's conclusion. That's so Abby. She always does this. And then I will judge her, and then she will feel sad. What Glennon doesn't see is that Abby has a ladder of her own. Abby's observation is that growing up, she often felt scarcity around food. And Abby's assumption is that it's up to her to protect her family from that. And to be the person that is in charge of our entire family's intake, I don't want anybody to experience that, that feeling of scarcity. Abby's conclusion is that she's being caring, not wasteful. And she thinks Glennon is being controlling. In conflict, the mistake we make is that we argue only about our conclusions. You're wasteful! No, I'm not. I'm caring, and you're controlling! What we need to do is walk down the ladder to share our observations and assumptions and invite the other person to do the same. What an inexpensive way to find security. Mm-hmm. Just some extra slices of pizza. Just solved a sincere... How many conflicts and issues we've had over that? I I mean, let's just say we've had 20 outward 
conflicts around yes. this thing. Yes. How many inward would you say you've had? Infinite. <laughs> <laughs> Conflict comes in multiple flavors. Walking down the ladder of inference can help with identifying what kind you're having. Let's start with task conflict versus relationship conflict. Task conflict is disagreeing about the problem, the solution, or the decision. And that can be both necessary and productive. Relationship conflict is fighting about differences in personalities or values. And that's sometimes unnecessary and usually destructive. In healthy partnerships and productive teams, we're able to have task conflict without relationship conflict. But all too often, they get blurred. Glennon and Abby started out with a simple task conflict. How much pizza to order? But it quickly became a relationship conflict. Glennon's desire to avoid wasting was clashing with Abby's desire to avoid scarcity. They needed to figure out how to have the task conflict without it affecting their relationship. It's so true. Yeah. So we want to get our relationship issues to become task issues. Abby wants to feel secure. Glennon wants to avoid being wasteful. So how do they accomplish both goals? We said, okay, if you overorder, can we commit to eating the leftovers? Nice. I've become a leftover person. Yes. Like, I'm okay if we're going to eat the leftovers and not just throw them away. And that, that seemed to work. Mostly, mostly works. Yeah. Okay. Navigating relationship conflict is rarely this simple. At work, your team isn't always full of people you fell in love with. Sometimes you might not even like the person. And conflicts can get messier when you're working with someone senior or lateral to you. Relationship conflict isn't the only kind of counterproductive conflict. There's also status conflict. Status conflict is about where we fit in the hierarchy that we're in together. So I think I'm higher in this informal status hierarchy than you, and you think you're higher in this informal status hierarchy than me. Or we're equal, but you're acting like you're higher. Meet Corinne Bendersky. She's an expert on conflict at UCLA, and she put status conflict on the map. It's not about clashes of values or personalities. It's about who's in charge. Who gets to decide what should happen in this situation? Corinne is not just a researcher. She's also a conflict mediator. So we called her to help two coworkers identify and resolve a conflict. So here we are, Danielle, Oren, I'm Corinne. It's nice to meet you officially. I um, am grateful for you to share the opportunity to uh, work with me on this workplace mediation with you guys. Hello, my name is Daniel Juby. I'm a product manager and I'm from Mexico, living in London. And starting out in a new company, being from another country, it's been a little bit challenging because I was on board remotely. Danielle has been working for about a year in a software company in the UK, and he's only met some coworkers in person once. It's really hard to understand, yeah, how to, I guess, bond and connect with other people. You need to introduce yourself by trying to create those moments on Slack. I work with a lot of emojis. I am a very excitable person, I guess. Danielle has been learning the ropes in this new job and figuring out how to work with his new team. But things started to get fuzzy between him and one of his closest coworkers, Oren. Hey, my name is Oren. I'm a senior delivery manager. Although Oren is more senior in the company, they have the same boss, and the hierarchy is not always clear. In some tasks, Danielle gives assignments to Oren. Over time, Danielle has experienced a few tense moments with Oren, and he's not always sure where to draw the line on his responsibilities. 
he was off and I sent him a message as luck saying, hey, I just wanted to know that if it was okay that I sent this meeting, but on Slack, the way he replied back, it was, why are you doing my job? And he was writing with like full stop. Sure, full stop. Or I'm on it, full stop. <laughs> on my perception, very harsh and serious. And I'm like, oh my God, what's happening with this guy, man? Why is he just shutting me down, right? Like, And then I decided, you know what, it's more important to discuss and have it communicate than just don't do anything. So I, I sent him a, an invite and... I think he just declined the invite. I felt like why he's being so rude and for that day and then the next coming weeks, it was just uncomfortable because now I was like, oh, maybe this is going to create another conflict, right? It might sound on the surface like basic communication trouble, but actually there are multiple kinds of conflict going on here. When you're in the midst of conflict, it's often hard to take a step back and see what kind you're in. Clarifying that can help you solve it. But Danielle and Oren didn't get to fully identify the issue right away. So a few weeks later, another conflict emerged. They had a big opportunity to work on a major project. And Danielle gave clear instructions to Oren to prepare for the next meeting. The moment I sent that email to Oren, I just removed that from my to-do list. And I didn't follow up um, whatsoever. I was under the assumption that Daniel was on the same page. So... A couple of hours or an hour before that meeting occurred. I said to Dioran, everything is ready for today, right? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, like, yeah, I, I send you an email specifically saying we need to do all these things. And he said, well, I didn't, I didn't do it. I, I, I'm sorry. It turned out that instead of doing things the way Danielle prescribed, Oren had gone straight to their boss, changed the plan, and didn't update Danielle until an hour before their meeting. And that annoyed me more. You've probably had a disagreement with a colleague escalate into a conflict. Even though it starts small, it can have big consequences. Corinne had them walk down the ladder of inference and share their assumptions. I sent him a, an invite and he just declined the invite. And I'm like, what is up with this guy? I think he must have thought this guy is absolutely ghosting me because he hates my guts. Because he has very clearly made clear that delivery is his thing and Daniel should not touch delivery is probably what he, he interpreted early on. So what kind of conflict were they having? To me, it sounded like a relationship conflict, a clash of their personalities, with Danielle being conscientious and Oren being more spontaneous. And that created a status conflict, where Danielle felt Oren overstepped his bounds. I think it started with the relationship conflict, then that manifested as a task conflict, which was interpreted at least by Danielle as a status conflict. There are different solutions to relationship conflict and status conflict. Let's look at relationship conflict first. In the mediation, Corinne asked them to describe their personality differences. I would consider myself quite intense, quite uh, like, <laughs> like we need to do this, we need to move, we need to just do a lot. I tend to be very, like, I guess quite impulsive, I guess. I'm, I'm very poor at prioritization. Describing personality differences is a way of walking down the ladder of inference, from conclusions to assumptions to observations. It can help strip away the layers to reveal what's really at the core of the conflict. Corinne worked with them to understand their different communication styles and how they set expectations. It is challenging to, to understand how he sees the world, how he wants to do everything. And I'm sort of quite a wishy-washy, is how I describe myself. I was very surprised, actually, that, that I had made angry or, or annoyed 
Daniel with this. I thought it was just the case that what was expected of me was to facilitate a session with the right people. And I, I'm glad that you're acknowledging you made assumptions because a lot of times miscommunications like this occur because people make assumptions and then they don't test those assumptions. These sorts of communication issues, I've, I've definitely had them before. Daniel's not the only person that we've, we've, I've had communication mishaps with. It's definitely made me a lot more cognizant of um, not everyone is from the same town that I'm from <laughs> and not everyone gets the same jokes and sarcasm and like British humour is sometimes doesn't land. It certainly made me think, I guess, a bit more internationally and deliberate, I guess, in my communication style. As Corinne walked them through their different working styles and personality traits, the root of the relationship conflict became clear. Danielle, you're more planful, and Oren, you're more fluid and flexible. Um, I can see how that would potentially cause some problems around expectations, around communication. When someone disappoints you, it's not because of their actions. It's because of a clash between their actions and your expectations. Understanding their personality can help you rethink your assumptions and conclusions and adjust your expectations. And now that I understand or better the washi-washi is if we were in a meeting and um, on the bullet points that Oren is thinking something is missing, it's okay to say, hey, what about this? We discussed this last week. Oh, yeah, you're right. I completely forgot and just set the expectation right uh, with what we're both doing. In a relationship conflict, a key to making progress is to gain self-awareness and other awareness. To improve your communication, it helps to understand how your cultural values and personality traits differ. You're not going to fix personality differences, right? We have Our personalities are who we are and what we bring to the table. At best, we can seek to understand and um, recognize the ways in which our personality differences may influence our interactions. When you walk down the ladder of inference, it helps you understand yourself better. When you see the other person's ladder, it helps you understand them better. And I think actually Danielle and Oren really did a nice job saying, I recognize now, Oren in particular, that I need to do a better job making sure I understand the expectations and writing those down and confirming them with deadlines. Because he has to be much more mindful of recognizing that in his interactions with Danielle, his default is really problematic. They'd made some progress on the relationship conflict. But what about status conflict? For Danielle, the core of the conflict with Oren was all about status. Who has authority over which decisions? And who's overstepping their responsibilities? Even though Oren is more senior in the company, he still owes some deliverables to Danielle. But the fact that they both report to the same boss and maybe are a bit, on some levels, they're horizontal peers, but in some other ways, it sounded like Danielle is you know, has more authority to make strategic decisions and Oren is in more of a position of implementation of those decisions. They needed more clarity on roles. That's the first important step toward reducing status conflicts. With status conflict, I think you really do have to talk about roles because roles are different than our formal titles. Roles are what are we contributing to this group. Corinne recommends that in new projects, managers do a kickoff meeting where there's an explicit discussion of skills and responsibilities. What value are they bringing? What is their expertise? What are their resources? What is it that they're contributing to this team that will enable the team to achieve its collective goal? 
And if I know that you understand what I bring to the table and you know that I understand what you bring to the table, we're much less likely to interact in a way that makes one of us feel disrespected. This initial meeting can turn a potential status conflict into a constructive discussion. And facilitates the group members negotiating their status hierarchy. So sometimes referred to as a status sorting process. Beyond clarifying roles, a second step for dealing with status conflict is to establish respect. Corinne has found that in a status conflict, it helps to make it clear that you value the other person, their skills, their commitment, or their contribution. Literally by saying it out loud, like, I admire your expertise on financial markets, or... I appreciate how hard you work on tasks that aren't even in your job description. That lowers the experience of that interaction as threatening and makes them less defensive and more open to working with the other person, maybe resolving the conflict. To solve their status conflict, Danielle and Oren needed to build respect and clarify their roles. So Corinne helped them understand how they complement each other. As far as I'm concerned, my role is not really to make decisions for the team. It's to help those teams get better at decision making and how they work within themselves so I'm, I'm sort of a, a coach in that but not sort of the accountable party for execution i do have a, a more responsibility because i will need to push orin to say um this is why we need to get to this place and i need your help and of course if i wasn't doing my job whatsoever he will tell me hey i don't know where we're going you know, we are completely lost. And he can also make me accountable. And instead of creating tension between their different personalities, they've learned to adapt to each other's styles and work toward a common goal. Since that conversation, we separate ourselves. And I think we're just doing it by, by nature, not by thinking. It's just we're separating ourselves to just think about the task and the work we're doing rather than the individual because we know we have the best intentions on both ends. No biases, no ego, nothing. And it was really, really clear, yeah, just after the mediation. But what if the conflict isn't just between two people? What if there's a clash within a team, between teams, or even with the CEO? More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast, because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at Verizon. Imagine you're a teacher trying to incorporate a new piece of technology in the classroom, but you're not exactly a computer whiz. Who do you naturally ask for help? Easy, a student. You would be in class and a teacher would call you out of your class just to get you to help them figure out their tablet. That's Nysir Vaughn. In middle school, he was chosen to be part of one of Verizon's digital inclusion initiatives, the Verizon Innovative Learning Program. The teacher said to us, the point of the program was to like, have us get like background knowledge on the tablets and use that knowledge to be able to help other students and teachers. Nysir's school in Pennsylvania was the home of the Tigers. So this group of student helpers became known as Tiger Tech. This one time, we had these screens that, for the tablets, like, they would turn pink out of nowhere. And we called them, like, pink screens. And one day, we opened the back of it, and then we connected a wire. We disconnected and connected it back, and it fixed the screen. 
And ever since then, I was like, oh yeah, this is something I could really know how to do. The Verizon Innovative Learning Program wasn't only giving students access to new tools, they were also building their confidence. It felt empowering. I learned that like I really enjoy technology, like it's a really a part of who I am. And I'm really good at teaching other people things about technology. Daily, teachers would ask the tire techs for help. Research reveals that helping and teaching others can help us build confidence in our own skills. The program introduced Nicere and his peers to STEM studies, inspiring them to consider careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. Eighth grade, I was doing my classes for the next year, and when I saw the engineering courses, I knew that like that's the path I wanted to take. After Tiger Tech, technology was just always there. It was always like a part of learning. Nasir is now finishing his freshman year at Howard University. His major, engineering. It's been a struggle for now, but I think that's only because we're all like stuck inside. When I finally get there, I can't wait to make the most of every single activity I can. Before, he loved playing video games and using apps. Now he wants to make video games and build his own apps. One day, like, making a video game or making an app that like everyone uses and just be able to say like looking at someone using it be like hey i made that the verizon program it really shaped my life i feel as though it opened doors to being able to know what i want to do with my life to being able to go to howard in general because they just gave me the motivation to want to continue in that STEM field. This is just one of the ways that Verizon is committed to closing the digital divide. To learn more about Verizon's responsible business initiatives and impact, head to citizenverizon.com. I have this conflict that I've been struggling with for years. See, I'm a morning person, and I work on this team that has long, intense meetings that sometimes go past 1 a.m. And I wake up the next morning, and I just can't function. So finally, after many exhausted days, I proposed a solution, a 10 p.m. bedtime. And the night owls did not go for it. When conflict consumes a whole team or the entire organization, you start to see a fault line a divide between different groups. And that can create an earthquake. Research shows that fault lines are common within teams and between teams. You can have entire groups that dislike and disrespect each other, which is not good for performance or morale. Some fault lines are around status conflict. There are tensions between groups around who's running the show, like sales trying to give orders to engineering, or headquarters trying to dictate how a satellite office works. Other fault lines are around relationship conflict. Groups have clashing values and personalities, like tensions between the old guard and new hires, or between East Coast efficiency and West Coast creativity. In my team, we had a fault line between night owls and morning people. I wanted to figure out how to solve it, and I came across an unusual process at a payments company called Expensify. What we like to do at Expensify is we challenge ourselves to really solve hard problems. And we can't solve hard problems if we can't have hard conversations. 
They have a company-wide system for conflict resolution that they use all the time, with some remarkable results. The system was put to the test in the fall of 2020, when their CEO felt that the political climate was threatening Expensify's future. Democracy is crumbling before our very eyes, and that's going to create an adverse business climate. And so our solution is we need to unelect Trump. I'm David Barrett, the founder and CEO of Expensify. David proposed sending an email to all their users, 10 million of them, that a vote for Donald Trump was a vote against democracy. Would you want your CEO to send that email to all your customers? That's not something every liberal would think is a good idea. And it's not likely to be something your average conservative employee would be on board with. My name is Tim Golan. I'm a director at Expensify. I'm a registered Republican. And I think he made very compelling arguments, but I personally wasn't convinced. I think that there was some amount of sensationalizing it. Like, we've had a lot of bad presidents in the past, and democracy has still survived those presidents. Tim didn't agree with David's idea at first, but after it went through their conflict resolution process, he accepted it. This process that David used, it's a process that we use over and over and over in the company every day, essentially to get anything done. In October, David sent the email. I wrote it on a Sunday night in probably about a half hour and send out an email to our 10 million users saying that anything less than a vote for Biden is a vote against democracy. On a scale from nervous to completely freaking out, what did it feel like to send it? I would say it was like a seven on the freaking out scale. It's like, it's basically, it's like, okay, you know, we really have no idea what's going to happen here. I can't imagine having a conflict that political at work, let alone resolving it. But I wanted to understand how their process works and see if it applies to the kinds of fault lines I see in teams every day. Expensify has a powerful way of identifying what a conflict is really about. It starts with their values. Expensify has two guiding rules. As Tim describes them, The first rule is get shit done. And the second rule is don't ruin it for everybody else. And so the first rule is really about everyone just needs to get their work done, they need to do it efficiently, and they need to work on the most valuable thing. Rule number two violations, which are don't ruin it for everybody else, like making good decisions for you and for the company. These rules say a lot about the type of culture Expensify strives for. They emphasize a key value, respect. Respect people's ability to get things done, and don't waste their time or undermine their experiences. These rules helped establish a public process where anyone can raise an idea or voice an issue. It's a Slack channel called What's Next. It's a channel where people just post problem solution statements. You just come up with an idea, you solicit feedback from people in the company, and then you, uh, you know, get volunteers to, to help you execute it. Since many people at Expensify are remote, they use this channel almost every day. Not usually to resolve differences about politics, but to address conflicts around policies and practices. Think about the conflicts in your workplace. They consume a lot of time and energy. Across companies, managers report spending one to two full days of their work week resolving conflicts. At Expensify, for the most part, we expect people to manage themselves and to like fix their own problems. The first step is identifying the problem. If you have a problem with a project or procedure, you post it with a possible solution and ask others to weigh in. People can question, like, is that really a problem 
or I disagree with that problem. I actually think the problem is this. And so there's a whole discussion that goes around defining what the actual problem is. This was a light bulb moment for me. I realized I made a mistake with my night owl colleagues. I jumped to a solution before defining the problem. Psychologists have demonstrated a pattern called solution aversion. When people don't like a particular solution, they often deny or dismiss the problem altogether. And if you can't get people on the other side of a fault line to even recognize the problem, you're not going to solve it. I asked him how we could build a bridge across our fault line and resolve the conflict more effectively. I think everything should be boiled down to a problem-solution statement. So anyone that has conflict should be able to identify the problem and then come to the table with a solution. So in this case, if it's the morning people, they would write down their problem-solution statement. The problem should only be a sentence, maybe two sentences long. The, the shorter, the better. For example, when we have a meeting at 10 o'clock at night, I've already been working all day. I mean extremely exhausted and I can't focus. People can question like, well, is that really a problem? Or I disagree with that problem. I actually think the problem is this. I think it's it's also interesting because if I if I go with your advice here and I write a statement of the problem, I, I quickly start to realize that there's a deeper problem um, at play here, which is, yes, the problem is that some of us are tired and you know others are not. The deeper problem, I think, is that it feels to me like the night owls just, <laughs> they unilaterally implement their preferred solution because, you know, we, we start our meetings when, when we're available and then we don't go to bed until they're done and they don't show any concern or respect for the mental states of the, of the morning people. So I guess then I could rewrite the problem statement and say, look, I... Part of the problem is that some of us are exhausted, but the, the deeper problem is that there seems to be a status conflict here, which is you think you're in charge. And there are actually more, by the way, morning people than night owls. And so this feels completely inverted. So am I expected to be comfortable stating the problem that way? Yeah. And I, I think what you described is totally valid. And how this oftentimes goes is that the problem that you start with might not actually be the problem that ends up being dealt with in the end. And through this open communication process, that problem can be found out and it can be uncovered. When I jump to a solution, I haven't fully diagnosed the problem. Even if I could get the night owls to agree on a 10 p.m. bedtime, there's still an unresolved status conflict around them unilaterally overriding the morning people. I love this idea of a problem statement. It crystallizes the core issue at the heart of the fault line, it allows you to walk down the ladder of inference to identify the root of a disagreement. Once the problem has been defined, then you can move on to agreeing on the solution for it. And that's really how most of our conflict resolution happens at Expensify. I think this approach has important implications for handling conflict. Leaders often say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. I get why they say that. They want people to be constructive, not to whine or complain. But if people can only speak up when they have a solution, you'll never hear about the biggest problems, which are too complex for one person to solve. And even if they do have a solution, it might be the wrong solution, or they might be solving the wrong problem. By creating a space where people can share problem solution statements publicly, Expensify opens up the conversation and makes it easier for everyone to identify the type of conflict before trying to solve it. 
It helps to prevent relationship conflict by focusing on the problem, not the people. And to prevent status conflict by making sure different perspectives are respected and considered. Remember the CEO's email that raised concerns among conservative employees? By posting his idea on the What's Next channel, David identified a specific problem. He believed Trump was a threat to democracy. And a solution. They should email their users to vote him out. The problem-solution statement allowed employees from across the political spectrum to focus on the task conflict. For example, they decided that free and fair elections are one pillar of democracy, and then examined the evidence around claims about voter fraud. So we were able to use this channel to, you know, dive into the data and find out that no voter fraud, like, isn't really a real thing. After extensive discussions, the organization agreed that David should send the email. Wherever you stand on politics, there's something to be learned from Expensify's process for having constructive conflict. But the process only works if you have a culture of respect. We've developed a very candid way of speaking with each other. Like, we don't have egos. Like, we're able to have extremely difficult conversations. And everybody can walk away from those conversations understanding that they've felt heard. Tim, you said something that surprised me just now. You said we don't have egos. As a psychologist, I think everyone uh, has an ego. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I, I suppose it means... Um, we don't let our egos get in the way of, of what we do at work. And that probably comes out through a lot of humility. Humility is one of the core values that we have at Expensify. And that comes about in different ways. But like one of the biggest ways is that we, in, as a company and inside the company, we don't want to agree to disagree. You don't have to agree to disagree. You just have to agree to disagree respectfully. I think the clearest sign of intellectual chemistry isn't agreeing with someone. It's enjoying your disagreements with them. Harmony isn't the combination of identical sounds. It's the pleasing arrangement of different tones, different voices, or different instruments. Creative tension can make beautiful music. In a culture that deals with conflict effectively, people aren't afraid to bring their problems to the table. If you can agree on the problem, you have a better shot at finding a solution that works for everyone. And even if you don't find that perfect solution, you've at least strengthened your ability to build consensus around the diagnosis of the problem. Maybe I'll bring my problem statement to the night owls. Although I kind of hope they listen to this episode before I work up the nerve to do it. Next time on Work Life. If I'd intervene on something that's racist, it's not on my behalf or another one of my black colleagues. It's because it's an incivility against the values that people say they share. The presence of a black person has never been required for racism to occur. It's the first of two episodes on anti-racism and de-biasing individuals and organizations. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ban Ban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Constanza Gallardo. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. 
For their research, thanks to the late Chris Argeris and Peter Sangi on The Ladder of Inference, Tale Yal and colleagues on Perspective Seeking, Eddie Jen and colleagues on Conflict Types, Sherry Thatcher and colleagues on Fault Lines, Drew Carton and Jonathan Cummings on Subgroups, and Troy Campbell and Aaron Kay on Solution Aversion. And for more from Glennon Doyle, stay tuned for a bonus episode with her later this season. David, what does Expensify do? Expensify does expense reports that don't suck. Given that the motto of our show is is studying how to make work not suck, the idea of making expenses not suck, which are one of the suckiest parts of work, definitely appeals to me. 